Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, R.A. Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Jeremy Dauber. Uh, Jeremy, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, uh, it's great to be here. My name is Jeremy Dauber. I'm a professor at Columbia University, and I recently published a book uh, about Mel Brooks. Thank you so much for coming on today. So, yes, we're going to be talking about your new book, fairly new. It came out in March, right? That's right. Mel Brooks, Disobedient Jew is the title and subtitle, and it's part of the uh, Jewish Lives series from Yale University Press. I, so this is a, a well-established series of short, on the shorter side, biographies of famous Jews. How did you end up writing one about Mel Brooks? Well, you know, the uh, the short answer to that question is they asked me and I said yes. Um, <laughs> But the, uh, the slightly longer answer uh, is that, you know, I've spent a lot of my time at Columbia teaching and then writing about uh, Jewish comedy. Uh, I had wrote a different book about a history of Jewish comedy, a more broad book, uh, a few years back. And, you know, so it was something that, that was a matter of intellectual interest to me. It's a matter of just fun. And, and you know, um, I'd grown up watching Mel Brooks movies as well. So, you know, the opportunity to really dig more deeply uh, into his work and think about it sort of more coherently uh, was just a great opportunity. So it was a great chance to do it, and it was a lot of fun. There's a list in the back of my copy of the both the published titles and the forthcoming titles. It's a very impressive series, and you know some of the people who have been covered. Uh, well, it starts off, first alphabetically Rabbi Kiva, uh, the Talmudic sage, and let's see Karl Marx, uh, Arthur Miller, and then future ones include uh, Abraham, the biblical patriarch, and Jesus. Um, so <laughs> there's quite a wide range going from biblical times to to modern day. And Mel Brooks, of course, is, is as of this taping, is still alive. He's like 98 years old or so. Um, right. He's 97. And, you know, he's a 2,000-year-old man. So it's... Uh, it seems <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he himself... That's right. Yeah, his most famous, or not, maybe not his most famous bit, but, but one of the bits that catapulted him to stardom involves this idea of someone who was like Jesus's, you know, neighbor or something like that. Um, what, what about Brooks's life or his, um, his story or what he represents, what like appealed to you in particular? Well, you know, one of the other sides of the things that I do is not only do I work on Jewish literature and Jewish studies, but I also do American culture, uh, American popular culture mostly. And I had written a book not too long ago on uh, American comic books, for example. Um, and, you know, so this idea of the intersection between those uh, Jewish literature and culture, American culture, you know, really, in some ways, Mel Brooks is at the epicenter of that intersection because he really is sort of the apotheosis of a kind of American Jewish cultural enterprise and endeavor to really, on the one hand, try and make yourself uh, at the heart of American culture, really sort of beloved by all of America, right, to entertain, by entertaining them, right? But also at the same time saying, there's something about me uh, and there's something about my kind of approach to things that is never really going to be uh, fully comfortably American. And so my, uh, my position, which will lead me to the centrality of fame and, and, and popular acclaim, is to be kind of a loyal opposition, right? And one of the... <laughs> That I, you know, suggest is, you know, to be this kind of disobedient Jew, but within the system, right? To have this kind of licensed anarchy and parody, which, of course, is how Mel Brooks made his biggest reputation, is sort of the actual 
concretized form of that in comedy because you have this very kind of both loving and adoring relationship to the material that you're parodying but also you're saying look you know it, it, it it's literally ridiculous you can ridicule it or you can make fun of it or you can chaff at it and things like that so that's that's sort of brooks in a nutshell um can you explain the anecdote of where this subtitle disobedient jew comes from Sure, absolutely, yes. So for those of you, I think anyone listening to this knows Mel Brooks, um, but probably you may or may not know that he used to sign his letters, your obedient Jew, Mel Brooks, right? And uh, and so therefore I took off on that in sort of subtitling the book. Uh, and part of the joke of Brooks's signature, right, is that, you know, although he may have been loving and adoring and all these kind of things to American culture, he was never really obedient. And even in writing that, he kind of was making that clear that he was not being obedient. He was sort of sticking a finger in the eye, but he was doing it in a way that also harnessed that to his Jewishness, right? It's your obedient Jew, not your obedient servant, which was the <laughs> older version of this, right? So, um, so that is uh, where I took this from. And in some ways, it was a little bit of a key to unlocking kind of who this guy was for me. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the this is a somewhat of a tangent, but I think it's interesting. So your previous book is um, American Comics, A History. And um, probably most people know by now that a lot of the early comic book creators were Jewish. The two guys who created Superman, Schuster and Siegel, I think are their names, they were Jewish. Right. And then uh, Stan Lee is Jewish and Jack Kirby is Jewish. <laughs> and um, I had had either read or, for, or maybe somehow thought myself that one of the reasons for this is that a lot of the, the the skills that someone had to in the early comic book years um you know that type of person would maybe naturally go towards like fine illustration or advertising in the mad men world and those industries were closed off because of anti-semitism to jews so the jews are sort of like relegated to this like disrespected genre of comic books, which was like, you know, garbage for kids and teenagers. And they had to, um, you know, make, make, make their own way in this form that was not respected. And there's, it's sort of like maybe early Hollywood and other, and sort of like, you know, like Broadway was more respectable. And then if Jews weren't able to participate there, they went and did their own thing. Do you see a connection there between Brooks's life and that sort of, you know, people who weren't allowed to advance uh, in the, like, WASP-dominated industries? I think absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, the key to sort of American Jewish cultural uh, success uh, is a combination very frequently of two things, and they both apply with both comic books and Mel Brooks. You know, the first, as you said, absolutely, is uh, barriers to employment. Uh, in high-status areas, thanks to uh, anti-Semitism and discrimination. One way we can see this is it was actually a quite high-status thing to be a comic strip drawer in the newspapers that preceded comic books. And that was really populated by, by you know, non-Jews. And there were very, not none, but there were very few Jews in the comic strip business. And then, as you say, you know, the entire comic book business is, is, is you know, is, is Jewish or sometimes other white ethnics at the beginning, like Italians, you know, were subject to this kind of discrimination. So there, there's that side of it. Um, and, and certainly, you know, so much of the Borscht Belt in which Bell Brooks and American Jewish comedy 
uh, got its start in many ways in that post-war period was because of discrimination. If there had not been restrictions on Jews uh, being in hotels and other kind of Catskills hotels, they wouldn't have created this kind of Jewish hotel ecosystem that really, you know, birthed American Jewish and then in many ways American post-war comedy. Um, the second uh, effect uh, or the second factor, uh, which applies both to comic books and to Mel Brooks, is network effects. So, you know, you would say, oh, you know, I have a job making comic books or I have a job in, you know, one of these industries. Um, who am I going to hire? Well, somebody I know, you know, somebody who's local and I know and uh, who's talented, you know, I'll hire my cousin. Of course, that's how Stan Lee gets his first job. He's literally a cousin or a wife's cousin of Martin Goodman, who owned the, the company that was basically Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, you know, Mel Brooks is known. He sort of hangs around the mountains. He gets to know Sid Caesar. He, you know, he gets to know uh, that crew. And when Caesar has your show of shows, he takes along this guy who we kind of met, right? And and there's all of these kind of networks uh, that 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 go into the creation of that sort of first explosion of live television that your show of shows really dominates and really gives Mel Brooks his his, his real launch. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, why don't we talk about that period? Or I guess the period preceding that, leading up to sort of the Borschfeld era, and what was um, Brooks's childhood like, and what what was his you know his family of origin like yeah so that's a great question so i think you know um the the two the two or three things that i'll say and you know of course anyone who's listening to this if you want to hear more you can you can read about it in the book but uh um one big thing is that mel brooks's father dies when he's very when he's basically a baby um and uh you know or a toddler and so you know there is a lot of comedy that comes out of this kind of familial loss or this familial trauma. A lot of comedians have some version of this in common. Um, this is certainly the case with Mel Brooks. Uh, and he spends a lot of his life, you know, looking for uh, certain kinds of father figures. And really he finds that in Sid Caesar in, in, in a very fundamental way. So that's one sort of very important fact that sort of need to be adored, uh, that kind of need secondarily to find a father figure. That, that, that's very big uh, for him. The second is, you know, he, he grows up in Brooklyn in this very kind of Jewish space, right? This very comfortable Hamish, as we would say, this homey kind of Jewish space uh, uh, that he's in. And that gives him a kind of comfort, of course, with his Jewishness uh, that, that, that's sort of organic and natural. And he's an outer borough kid. He's not, in, he's not a Manhattanite. And so he sort of dreams uh, of Broadway. Right. To, you know, he is, you know, Brooks, as you as, as we're saying, is in his late 90s. He really grows up in some ways, um, even in the early days of movies. But where really the, 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 the cultural center, uh, the thing that you really aspired to really was not to be a movie star. Right. Was to be to be a, a theater person. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has really stayed, obviously, with him throughout his entire life in a way that, you know, people a generation or two generations after him, uh, even if they're making movies at the same time, uh, are not necessarily quite in sync with him. Steven Spielberg grows up as a film kid, uh, even though Jaws is coming out like almost exactly at the same time as Young Frankenstein. You know, hmm. there's a theater guy, um, but also, of course, a movie guy. I mean, he's growing up as a little kid in the age of those first sound films and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that those are the aspects. And then the last thing I'll say is Brooks gets a little bit older, you know, he, um, you know, we, we talk, I, I suspect we'll get to this. We talk about the producers, about sort of fighting Nazis, right? 
Uh, it's important to remember that Brooks is a World War II veteran. Brooks actually fought Nazis. He literally did. So that's an important thing to keep in mind, too. He was a soldier. He was in Europe. He saw, you know, what was going on, uh, uh, you know, in, in World War II. He had a family, maybe he had a brother who also served, who was a prisoner of war for a while. You know, this was a guy who really sort of lived through those, the, those moments in American history uh, as well, uh, even though, of course, we associate him uh, as a post-war figure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he, his formative experiences, he's a greatest generation guy. He is not a baby boomer, um, even though, as I say, baby boomers are producing some of their most important works also at the same time that he's producing his. Mm-hmm. Did, did he speak Yiddish at home growing up? Uh, he spoke English growing up, but he certainly knew Yiddish. He, he, he was very familiar with it. You know, he, I mean, he could speak it, but, but he, he grew up as an English speaker. Okay. The, the 2000 year old man, and then some of his other characters like that, that short film that won the Academy award yeah. is sort of the persona of the, uh, like immigrant, older Jewish immigrant man with that accent. So I guess that was just the older generation that he was exposed to growing up. Yeah, he says actually that he grows up with all those voices in his head, you know, all those voices around him. Those are the voices he grows up with, right? Meaning he is growing up hearing them, right? Uh, and he's like, they will vanish. He literally says this. He's like, they'll 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 vanish. Um, and uh, and and this is in some ways his uh, uh, fond commemoration. Uh, of those voices. But as you know from listening to Mel Brooks talk, it's a voice that he slips into rather than his own voice, right? It's not that's right. not how he speaks. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a persona uh, uh, for him. And he does it, of course, extraordinarily well. Um, but in that way, it's a kind of disguise, just as very famously, the uh, Yiddish-speaking Native Americans uh, in Blazing Saddles <laughs> Are also a disguise, right? Um, but they're, you know, and 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 uh, not a not a good one um, uh, in all sorts of ways. But they're, they're, it's meant to show, right? But it is a um, it is a disguise, right? Um, yeah, he's and it's, so it's sort of like he's between, you know, he he is not he's between the generations and assimilation, and yeah, could understand or speak Yiddish, but um, <laughs> English is primary thing. So it's sort of a, you know code switching situation. Okay, so he gets so he gets back from the war and what's his next step and how does he end up becoming this like borscht belt performer? So, you know, he already in during the war, he is already knows that he wants to kind of be an entertainer. That's that's sort of his job for most of the for most of the time in the war. He's kind of arranging GI entertainment things like that. Um and you know, he tries to make a living of it, uh, you know, in, in, in this post-war period. Uh, and, and he is not necessarily doing so amazing, right? One of the things that I, I, I like doing in the book is making sure, you know, we, we think of Mel Brooks as this monumental success, which of course he is. Um, but, you know, it, it takes him a quite a bunch of failure on the way to becoming a success, as it does for so many of us. Uh, and so, he, um, you know, you have to tell that part of the story to tell who he is, too. So he's floundering a little bit, one of those first periods of his floundering. Uh, and he finally, through some connection, and, you know, he'd been going up even before he went to the war. He'd been going up a little bit to the mountains, uh, you know, in various different kinds of uh, positions. Um, but really, the most important thing, as so frequently it is in life, uh, that happens to him is that he makes a connection while he's up there, right? Not, uh, and that connection, of course, is Sid Caesar. And Caesar was, you know, 
this undisputed Olympian monumental talent uh, of the mountains. Everyone who saw him uh, uh, understood that this was a, a kind of sui generis figure, just in terms of the talent, the, the, the profile, sort of, you know, all of this. And Caesar had started working with this guy, Max Liebman, who was in charge of putting together some of these incredible shows that ran in the Borscht Belt, uh, you know, live entertainment that went over every, a new show every night. And then, you know, television starts uh, and they say, boy, uh, they say to Liebman, you know, we'd like you to produce this, some of these shows, this television show. Um, and we want you uh, to try and put together a group of people who can put on a brand new entertainment every week, you know. And so he says, well, I'm, of course, I'm going to go to my contact to the mountains. So he brings Caesar and then uh, Caesar brings Brooks along. Um, and that is the beginning of, I don't want to quite call it a partnership that would overstate Brooks, uh, his role on, on your show of shows. But that begins, you know, sort of the next stage in this relationship. And of course, as I say, launches Brooks uh, onto his own career. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk more about your show of shows and like what made it different or new at the time? And because it's not like, I don't know, it, it, it's part of the culture, but also like, I'm not sure it has the level of like current cultural like knowledge or resonance or something that maybe yeah well it was, maybe a, it it was a very long time ago I mean it was yeah, so it, seventy it, plus years I guess yeah it was so long ago that that when you ask you know what's new about your show shows and someone's the answer is everything right because it really sort of fundamentally is one of those shows at the beginning of small screens I mean nowadays I mean you used to be able to call it television but now you might just say streaming content into your <laughs> home right you know um, and that was very important I mean one of the points I make in the book is that you know, it's not called my show of shows, right? It's called your show of shows, right? It's bringing your, uh, bringing uh, uh, this entertainment into your home. You can turn it on, you can turn it off, you know, it, you know and, and, and as a result, um, it has to be, and I'm, I, I'm using this word for the second time in our interview, um, Hamish, it has to be kind of homey, right? Because otherwise it won't be appropriate for the house. So, you know, it it is all of these different kinds of things at once. One of the reasons it's called your show of shows is because it brings together a lot of different kinds of entertainment, including parodies, right? Which will uh, become Brooks's metier, both on the show and afterwards. Um, it also is very famous for featuring uh, a writer's room, which Brooks worked in, um, which would have between it and the show that came after it, kind of a murderer's row, again, of post-war talent, including at different uh, incarnations of Caesar's shows, uh, including Mel Brooks, including Woody Allen, including Neil Simon, including Larry Gelbart, who went on to do MASH, uh, just, and, and, and other people who people might know less, but still are monumental figures in their own uh, uh, right. And, you know, you would have, and almost all of these people were Jewish, right? So, uh, and, and, and Brooks was part of all of this that really helped to develop the grammar of television, of post-war entertainment, uh, and of course, reigning over all of it was Sid Caesar, who was just, you know, he was in almost everything, he, you know, he, he was just, he was in the writer's room, sort of figuring out what worked and what didn't work. He was, of course, the lead of the show, um, just a, a monumental task to have 90 minutes of live television a night where unlike even Saturday night live now, but you know, where you are the, the kind of star and it was, it was, you know, um, he had just a tremendously talented cast with him. 
but uh, uh, this was uh, not surprisingly just a force uh, in American culture for a couple of years in the in the very early 1950s. Were there ever critics who didn't like how the, uh, Caesar himself and, and the crew and cast were overwhelmingly Jewish, or like thinking this show is too Jewish for for the rest of America? Well, that's a great question because uh, I would say two things. Television at this point, right? Tele- we, we might now think, like the iPhone, that television rolls out and it's everywhere all at once, right? But it really wasn't. So um, television starts in, in, in major markets and big cities, which were disproportionately Jewish, and only rolls out kind of slowly uh, uh, over the years. So the idea on the one hand that a show was kind of Let's use these code words because this was the way people, right? Cosmopolitan and urban and all these mm-hmm. kind of things, right? That wasn't a, a, a bug. Uh, that was a kind of feature uh, at that point. And in fact, part of the reason that television changed was that audiences became much more uh, heterogeneous in terms of their interests and shows had to sort of change that. The other aspect was, and this is equally important, was that Caesar's show does not, even though we think of it as a very Jewish show and talking about it, maybe because of the writers, it does not come across particularly as deeply Jewish, right? See, nobody, there's very little on the show um, that if you were not Jewish, you would sort of be able to perk your ears up and say, oh, this is a Jewish show. Okay. There are occasional code words, you know, um, occasionally there's a Yiddish phrase that's sort of very vaguely thrown in. But it's often um, disguised in a way that you wouldn't necessarily know that you were missing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is this where he meets Reiner, or did he meet Reiner before before this? He meets Reiner on yes, right there. He meets Reiner in your show of shows. Um, so Reiner is, you know, a much bigger figure at the time than Mel Brooks is. Brooks is sort of since Caesar's little friend who's doing a little bit of work, right? <laughs> Uh, Reiner is not only uh, in the writer's room as a writer, but he's, of course, a a regular performer. He's the second lead almost on the show. Um, You know, I don't like the phrase second banana because that that uh, diminishes the work of those kind of. But but, you know, but he you know, Caesar was the undisputed, you know, lead. Right. And then there was Reiner um, who was just also uh, doing a a yeoman's amount of work on the show and and brilliant. So. You know that, but but of course, Reiner and and Brooks became good friends, uh, uh, very good friends, uh, best friends for 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 many decades until Reiner's death. So let's let's talk about the the two thousand year old man, which is their collaboration <laughs> and how that that bit came to be, or where what was the origin of that? So you know, again, I talk a lot about this in the book, and I I, I, I suggest that. Um, uh, people read it if they're interested in hearing more, but we'll talk about it a little bit here, that essentially what happens is that this is an act that is developed as so many sort of acts ahead of their time are inside the writer's room and then is rejected uh, as not possibly being good for the show, <laughs> right? Uh, and the reason there, and, and Carl Reiner in his memoirs is very explicit about this, um, is that they are... Um, too Jewish, right? Mm-hmm. So, and and at this point, Reiner is saying, "Look, it's really right after the Holocaust, okay? Um, and it is, uh, you know, this idea that um, a number of people are looking around and they're saying, 
what role does Jewish comedy have? Uh, not in, God forbid, thinking in creating the Holocaust or anything like that, but in perpetuating certain kinds of anti-Semitic actions or stereotypes or what have you. And so there was, in vaudeville and everything, there was all of this Jewish dialect comedy, right? Um, and they sort of said, you know, we're going to cool that a little bit, that we're, we're, we're a little worried that's going to give aid and comfort to people who we don't like necessarily. So um, that really is uh, one of the reasons that they felt that, uh, or Reiner claims anyway, that they felt that they couldn't uh, do this, uh, uh, you know, when, it, when they developed it as sort of in the writer's room of your show shows. And also, I think they were worried that it would be too inside baseball, it would be too Jewish, uh, all those kinds of things. But so they do it, they play it at show business parties, they get big hits after this. And as they're doing it, that aspect of is Jewish comedy too Jewish for America begins to change. And by the time it becomes around the late, very late 1950s, very early 1960s, you know, there's been really a sea change in that question. It's been, a, you know, 15 years since the end of World War II. Um, things are changing. And, uh, you know, a number of people are saying, look, you really need to, to put this out. And I tell a nice story in the book, which I will leave for the book, but about Cary Grant and the Queen of England. So, uh, you know, they, uh, a little, little uh, enticement for people. So that, uh, but basically there was a consensus that maybe it was okay to put this on record now. And, 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 and which was what it was on. It was on a long playing comedy record. Uh, and that then uh, goes out and it does quite well. And that really begins, you know, an upward trajectory for Mel Brooks's career. Right. And the, well, the, I mean, the origin, at least reportedly, oh, this, this sounds so, sort of like print the legend kind of thing is that like, yeah, they were sort of like bullshitting in the writer's room and Reiner turned to Mel Brooks and said like, oh, we have here a man who, 2000 years old and has witnessed the crucifixion. Like, what do you have to, what was it like? And then, <laughs> you know, just to, like out of nowhere. And then Brooks, you know, said, oh boy, or, or you know, something to that effect. And, um, and that improvisatory, like it was, it was improv, which is now like taken over comedy basically um, in that sort of like before it was really codified as, as its own genre, I guess. Um, but, and, and the records themselves, when they were doing these bits at like, parties and stuff like that must have been fully improvised right what but, but um when they did the actual recording and stuff was that also improvised or were they like redoing their best bits you know that do they right you're that seems to be first the first thing you said you know the anecdote with i understand you were right that seems to have been everyone basically agrees that first joke like sort of in the writer's room or something like that right where um there had been one of the things that your show shows did um, was this, uh, you know, parody of news reporters. They called it non-entities in the news, right? So they, they were used to kind of working in that kind of metier. Uh, and so they, you know, so they turn, they, they do this, right? And then, you know, um, and then it's, oh boy, right? And then, as you say, and then, and then it sort of starts. Uh, over the years, they would do it at these show business parties. Almost all of that would be, of course, improvised. Uh, and Reiner, I mean, again... You know, very frequently people think of this as a Mel Brooks 2,000-year-old man thing, but it really is a double act, right? And it can't work without Reiner kind of really kind of pushing Brooks, uh, changing the subject when he's getting lost, you know, sharpening things, begging him to go deeper, you know, that kind of thing. It's a really amazing uh, sort of dual 
performance uh, for both of them, of which, of course, the showier part uh, is Brooks's, but it really requires both. Um, when they finally get to putting it on record, it does seem that from the from from what we know that it was it was not totally improvised that it was they it was done improvisationally but they they did a couple of takes and they kind of put together some of the best takes so it's not one ongoing performance but the vast majority of it is really uh, a brilliantly controlled Carl Reiner chasing down Mel Brooks's uh, incredible fertile wacky imagination right uh, uh, and seeing what it will come up with under pressure. Mm-hmm. Okay, let, let's skip ahead chronologically a little bit, um, and people who want you know the full chronological story can read the book. But let, right. Let's skip ahead to um, to the producer. So, so you know he's in television. He, he creates to get smart, um, and then he wants to you know get into movies. And how does how does I mean you know this is <laughs> a big question. How does the producers? come to be and like how does he actually pull this thing off of that this is his first movie and it's this you know crazy idea that is still sort of radical today right so you know the thing i mean brooks has been around show business by this point for a long time right um so he knows every everybody knows him he's been you know as you say he's been sort of he's been successful in television he's been working uh he's never quite broken into the theater which is the stream of his but you know, he's been involved as a play doctor, right, you know, for a long time. He's, he's been involved with a lot of projects, some of, most of which did not go anywhere. Others were flops. Um, but for a long time, he was been thinking about writing a play, uh, or first a novel and then maybe a play, um, with called sort of Springtime for Hitler. Uh, and, you know, as we, as we all know. And at one point he says, he shows this big producer, you know, what he's got when he thinks it's a play and they say, the producer says to him, you know what? There's too many scenes. There's too many characters. This isn't a play. It's a movie. And, you know, even with all of, at this point, by the way, he's also, he's won an Oscar for that short film that you referred to before. Right. Even with all that, as you can imagine, it is hard to get money for this movie. Um, this is not a movie that everyone's like, yes, this is going to be a family pleasing four quad <laughs> production. Right. This is uh, you know, and, but, but, but people manage. Um, he shows it to this one producer. The producer very much uh, 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 thinks it's hilarious. Um, is willing to put up some of the money. But you know, this is really a kind of uh, a smaller production, um, and you know, nobody really knows how it's going to do. Um, and the truth is that it now, I mean, it's considered a huge classic, but commercially, it does not do very well at all. Uh, and you know, Brooks's wife uh, and Bancroft is in a little movie that comes out almost exactly the same time, involving almost many, many of the same people, um, called The Graduate, which, of course, is also <laughs> a small movie. That does, you know, phenomenally, right? I mean, this is a massive, massive hit. So, you know, I mean, Brooks does get, it should be said, Brooks does win an Oscar uh, uh, for the movie. Um, he wins an Oscar for the screen for the screenplay, which is, you know, which is quite impressive. Um, and, but, but it's really, and, and, you know, he does get enough money to make his next movie, which is this very interesting movie called The Twelve Chairs, but which also, you know, does nothing commercially. Um, and then, uh, you know, so who knows whether this is going to uh, have any success kind of in the movies going forward. But, you know, it's he has enough juice to continue to, uh, to, to get the opportunity to make Blazing Saddles. And after that, the rest of it is history. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about parody being sort of like his, his main form? He produces is not parody. 
And I mean, just like what, so when I was a kid, you know, in the eighties uh, and nineties, like yeah. the milk books I was exposed to was um, Robin Hood Men in Tights, which I think I saw in theaters when it came out. And, um, and that, oh God, the, the, um, the Star Wars parody, whose name is, is Escape Me Spaceballs, um, yeah. which, which, you know, I liked a lot <laughs> as a little kid. Um, like what, what attracted him to parody? Why do you, why do you think like that became his, his main form? Well, this gets back to what we talked about, I think at the beginning uh, of the interview um, or the discussion, which is that I really think that parody is a way of, uh, um, I mean, I don't think it was as thematic as this for him, but of expressing his own sort of conflicted feelings towards authority, towards America towards being an outsider and an insider, right? Where he says, I love all of this stuff. I love Westerns. I love horror movies, right? Um, I love these, I love Robin Hood. I love all of these things. They're part of me. But I don't see myself in them, right? I'm not, in some ways, these things are not part of what I am. Um, how do I get myself in there? And the way in which he's found it is by saying, you know, I'm going to poke fun at them. I'm going to show all of the things that they're missing. Uh, in certain kinds of ways. And of course, the most famous of this, um, certainly for the for many years, the most famous aspect of this was the 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 flatulence scene uh, in Blazing Saddles, mm -hmm. where he says, you know, there have been millions of I've watched millions of hours of people eating beans around a campfire, right? But nobody has ever shown what happens when you eat a lot of beans. Uh, around a campfire, right? And I'm going <laughs> to show that I'm going to show what's so going what is it the first like, fart in American cinema? Is that, is that accurate? You know, I'm always leery of saying that things are the first of anything because, you know, you're always going to find someone who's going to say, but wait, but it's certainly the most uh, impactful early farting scene. <laughs> um, I think I can feel comfortable saying that as a, as a cultural historian. And, and, you know, it's also important because for lack of a better phrase, it's harnessed to this kind of um, real aesthetic drive. I mean, I think it's not to, you know, bro uh, political drive in some ways. Brooks is very uh, open in interviews around the time, not just later on, but around the time, saying, you know, we are going to, uh, you know, we are going to try and kill every cliche in the Western, right? The Western is full of all of these things that it doesn't do, and we're going to try and do them. Uh, and in that sense, even though, as I said before, you know, he's uh, um, he is really not a member of the counterculture. He's the wrong generation. And in some ways, he's much more affectionate uh, towards the big systems than a lot of the sort of boomers. Um, he really also does have this sense of there are things that I'm going to try and smash, uh, you know, in the process of making these movies. Uh, I'm going to make sure that you never see them again. And, you know, part of that, and this is something that I think lands more even than it did then, although it certainly did then, right, is this in inclusion of a black hero mm -hmm. uh, into this. I mean, in, in the book, I call the uh, I call the movie Guess Who's Coming to the Campfire Dinner, uh, <laughs> you know, after this sort of civil rights era kind of uh, movie, right? But this is um, really just saying like, oh, it's reminding you that so much of the structure of this time that is being portrayed in these sort of beautiful John Ford tones um, is populated by people who, who were, uh, you know, incurably racist. And that becomes part of the story that Brooks wants to tell about these ethnic others 
who are not Jewish in the movie, right? But are also, you know, you could think about Jews kind of in the background there too, right? Of coming in and 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 meeting this kind of hostility, and then at the end, a certain kind of, uh, you know, at least uh, rapprochement, if not full acceptance, <laughs> um, and that's important. I'm glad you brought up the farting scene. Um, it, <laughs> it it makes me think that you know Brooks would like, you know, he he would do anything for a laugh. And maybe this comes from like that Borscht Belt thing of like, if the people are in the audience are starting to grow restless, like, what do you do? Maybe yeah. you make a, a funny fart sound or something. But like, I don't, you know, if we're going to pair like the other sort of paired person culturally with Brooks and maybe Woody Allen, I don't know yeah. if there's a fart joke in any Woody Allen movie. Um, but, you know, Brooks, it was, is like, you know, the lowest earthiest form of humor farting. Um, along with like, you know, the, the like critiquing Nazis, this critique of racism, you know, much more high concept stuff. So like the range of his, his comedic vision is, you know, much larger than, than, than in his contemporaries, I think. And it does seem to be sort of like, yeah, just like keep them entertained, do anything to, to get a laugh. Uh, yeah. And especially when you go to the extremely high concept things like the end of the movie where, um, or just the end of Young Frankenstein, which is the one where they're like running through the studio set and like there's the, Buzzy no, it's the end of Blazing Saddles. You're right. It's the end of Blazing yeah, Saddles. So, yeah, an extremely like sort of postmodern high concept humor combined with fart jokes. It's yeah, that that does seem unusual. No, I think that's right. And you know, I think it's funny. I mean, because as you, as you know, um, failure is an orphan. Success has a thousand uh, parents. Um, that usually everyone wants to take credit for everything, right? Anything good in a movie, everyone wants to say, "Oh, I did that. That was me," right? But everybody agrees even though the, the the Blazing Saddles script was a collaborative effort in many ways, it was a writer's room, you know, that that, that idea was Brooks's idea, uh, right? That kind of postmodern, kind of very intellectual, kind of breaking the fourth wall, that was uh, a Brooks. And I really do think, and I talk about this a lot in the book, because of course everyone was comparing Brooks and Allen, um, that, you know, in many ways, Brooks really is an intellectual as a, I mean, he goes on to be a producer or produces a lot of these sort of very highbrow films. Um, it, you know, as I said earlier, he follows the producers with this other movie that's sort of very interesting, but which is based on this sort of Russian Jewish novel uh, from the early 20th century. He really was a kind of intellectual. Alan always claimed, always says and said that he was not an intellectual. He always says this in interviews. And one of the things that I think is the most interesting about all of the discourse of the 1970s and, and on is that nobody actually takes him at his word. Um, <laughs> and I think it's actually, I think he, I think Alan in many ways is, is, and I think he would agree with this assessment. He seems to a pseudo intellectual. Um, and I think that uses sort of this kind of rhetoric, uh, but to almost deflated the show kind of, but not really to try and think through things very much. Right. And, 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 and Brooks in many ways is really very thoughtful. Uh, about what he wants to do. He's just thoughtful in the sense that he also understands that you can be thoughtful and tell lots of fart jokes. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you are a person who uses social media, but every couple weeks or so, it seems like something will trend where some cultural object from the past and people will be like, oh, you couldn't you couldn't make this today. Like, you could never get away with this today. They wouldn't let you make a movie like this or whatever. And Bla I've definitely seen people say you couldn't make a movie like Blazing Saddles today. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not. I mean... The uh, the racial politics have definitely changed. Do you have any any thoughts on on that? If you know, well, the, the taboos two, and so forth. I'll just say two things about. It. I mean, one is that even Mel Brooks is not sure that he would make 
blazing saddles <laughs> exactly the same way today. Um, but, and I think this is a very important but, it's not because of its politics, right? Um, and in fact, one of the interesting things about doing the research for the book was that you really find that that black papers, you know, really at the time are like, this is an anti-racist movie, right? Which it it, it is. It really is a movie that's really putting the, the, the burden and showing sort of the white supremacist as films. The way in which it's done, uh, uh, I think even Mel Brooks feels like he wouldn't be able to get away with today, but he shouldn't, uh, and, and, and do it in a different way, right? But... Uh, but in terms of the, it's not because uh, of the politics in a certain kind of way. Uh, I'm having to think about it. So that 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 that's one thing. Uh, I do think also that you know everything is the product of its time. I mean, as we were saying, you know, it, it's very difficult in certain ways to understand the appeal of some of the aspects of your show of shows now. Certainly, that you know that is not sort of. Uh, 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 lasted quite as long as maybe it could have um you know and that's because that's not because of necessarily anything objectionable but simply because much of the stuff that it's talking about just really doesn't apply uh anymore mm-hmm. um i think that you know one of the things that was the most interesting i grew up of the era to see space balls in the theater and i loved it as a kid um but looking at it as an adult you know it's interesting because brooks said when he when he made it that this was the first of his parodies that he made that he had no real personal connection to. Um, he said he made it because his kid was a fan of the Star Wars stuff, and mm-hmm. he understood that. It, and I think that it actually kind of shows. You know, there's something about when you're a parodist or something, or that being very much in the particular moment that has to... Uh, how would I put this? Something, you know, you're in the particular moment that, that, that makes it work, that makes you sort of vibrant and vital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you know that's harder when you're when you're just sort of doing it because you know your kids or your grandkids tell you that this is the thing right and you know it wouldn't this whole putting aside you know whether you could make a movie that was so like non-politically correct today, it wouldn't make sense to make a western parody you know anymore these days like you know the western has been so has been dethroned and you know dissected and there's been revisionist and postmodern westerns, but just like a broad parody of a western wouldn't make any sense in in the current climate because it's yeah that like that form has been digested and regurgitated so many times. You know, I think that it would. There's always, I mean, one of the things I'm now the next book I'm working on, or one of the next books I'm working on, is a history of American horror, um, and I was f- happy to find that like. From the beginning of horror, there have been horror parodies, right? It's sort of like from the first years that you start making horror movies, people are already making fun of them. Um, and my sense is that it's not about sort of the deconstruction that, that pro- prohibits the parody, but it's about the the vitality and the vibrancy of the medium to the current attention span, right? So I think what you're talking about, at least if I may, you know, what I think that you're, you're, you're seeing is a kind of mostly exhaustion with the Western as a kind of current thing. That's not to say entirely. There's still stuff in, you know, Yellowstone may end up revivifying it so much that we'll have a Yellowstone parody and people will love <laughs> right. it. Right. But um, for right now, we seem to be in a moment where if you were, you know, I'm not a movie executive, but if you were going to have two parody uh, scripts in front of you and one of them was making fun of Westerns and one of them was making fun of superheroes, I know which one I would pick. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, okay, we're probably towards the end of our time. Is yeah. there anything else you want to mention before we before we wrap up? 
Let me think about that. I do think that uh, we haven't talked at all about Young Frankenstein. Right. Um, and I just would say that in many ways, um, you know, one of the things that's very interesting about Young Frankenstein is that it ends up being a movie that Mel Brooks is not in it, right? He doesn't star in it, He but but and he writes it with Gene Wilder. That is sort of a movie that, that is actually much deeper uh, than simply a parody of horror movies. It's a movie about sort of identity and assimilation. And even though there's not a Jewish uh, word in it, very much deeply about Jewishness. So if you're interested out there in how that's so, uh, uh, pick up the book. Um, would you, maybe last question, or definitely last, last question. <laughs> is he the dominant comedic figure in America after World War II? Is there any, I mean, who, the only challenger could be, I think, Woody Allen and probably for various reasons, <laughs> people don't want to think a ton about him anymore. What, I mean, is, who else could possibly challenge him? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think that one of the things, you know, in a sort of synergistic coincidence, uh, the book came out the day after History of the World Part Two premiered on Hulu. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things, you know, and, and the History of the World Part Two is a lot like a lot of Mel Brooks movies, if we're being honest, which is it's got some amazing bits and it's got some uh, less amazing bits. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, as years will go on, you'll remember the amazing bits and forget the less amazing bits. Mm -hmm. But... Um, what was incredibly inspiring uh, was that, you know, you saw just this incredibly wide, heterogeneous group of comedians of all different places, all different backgrounds, you know, who clearly all worshipped Mel Brooks for what, what he meant to them. Uh, and that's why they were all in this show, you know. Um, and so in that sense, I think, you know, if you're doing so many different kinds of comedy, as you say, vulgar comedy, other kinds of parody, even intellectual comedy, witty comedy, ethnic comedy, and, you know, all of these in people's own ways, they're taking lessons from that. The only person I can think of who has that same kind of, you know, influence, um, and it was, you know, and it, it, the, it's more among comedians in some ways, but was Lenny Bruce. Mm -hmm. uh, who was able, you know, and you hear over and over again, comedians of just a staggering variety of backgrounds saying, you know, I, Bruce spoke his truth. He spoke, you know, who he was, and that gave me the license uh, to speak mine. Right. So uh, regardless of what that was, you know, so, so he's the only competitor, but I think, you know, Brooks had better box office. <laughs> right. And, you know, Bruce, I mean, he died fairly young. So his correct influence is more like as a, iconoclast or turn, maybe turning point in the culture and um Mel Brooks still with us and yeah maybe there's something about a lot of his stuff can, can be encountered or understood at one level by a child uh like you know no. some of them are explicitly children's movies maybe the later ones and and maybe there's something that like lodges itself in your head if you see this as a kid and then you become an adult performer like no kid is watching Andy Hall at like seven years old, whereas you would watch some of these right. Brooks movies and they just become sort of like part of your comedic psyche. So that that influences baby, you know, is going to be more more long lasting or something. I, I think that's right. Yeah. Yes. OK. Should we end things there? That sounds great. Yes. Thank you so much for this. This was uh, wonderful. Well, thank you for coming on. So Mel Brooks, Disobedient Jew. A link will be in the show notes where people can get the book. Uh, it's part of the Yale series of Jewish lives. Um, if people want to follow you, 
anywhere else? Would you direct them to a website or a social media feed or anything like that? Uh, yes, I'm on Twitter uh, at Jeremy Dauber, D-A-U-B-E-R, and I'd love for people to follow me there. Okay, great. So so thank you again for coming on. I enjoyed the book a lot. If people want to learn about Mel Brooks, I would say this is you know, this is the, the best way to do it. Um, and so thanks to all the listeners out there. We'll see you again next time.